And we do bless the God who has ordained all our days for us, written in his book. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, once again, as we continue right where we left off, we'll be reading verses 11 through 22 and studying from there this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. So first we will read God's word and then we'll pray and ask for his blessing upon our study of it. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. This is God's word. Take heed how you hear it. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit To the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Would you pray with me, brothers and sisters? Oh Lord, we do pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We confess that our own sinfulness can obscure the clarity of your word and our frail minds impede our understanding of it. And so we ask that you'd grant us the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. That his ministry would shine in our hearts and would unstop our ears and would give us understanding this day as your word is preached. As we study it together, would you seal its truth upon all our hearts for your glory and for our everlasting good. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, we continue this morning in our series through this wonderful letter to the Ephesians as it helps us, as I've argued in the past, to shore up in several areas where the church in our age seems to be at her weakest, at least nationwide. Our understanding of who Christ is, the doctrine of Christ, we call it, and our understanding of who we are as his people, the doctrine of the church. These are some things that we need to be thinking about together in our time. And this marvelous letter from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians, is a kind of handbook, if you like, like Christianity 101. It drives home what we as Christians believe concerning the church and what we believe concerning her king, the Lord Jesus. 
One commentator described this section of Ephesians that we're reading, Ephesians 2, really the whole chapter, both the first and second sections. He described it as God's trophy showcase, trophies of grace, that all of chapter 2 stands together as a a cohesive unit, of course, but we we have to divide it somewhere. And so we looked at verses 1 through 10 last week, and now we look at verses 11 through 22. But it is a cohesive unit, and there is still an overarching linkage and theme between these two sections. And you'll see that, I think, as you look at verse 7 in Ephesians 2 from our section last week, and almost draw an imaginary line or draw a pencil line from verse 7 down to this whole section in verses 11 through 22. Over and over again, looking back and forth in the first half of Ephesians 2 to the second half, this recurring reaction that Paul keeps on having and one that he wants us to have as well is to look at this text and ponder its truths and come away with this wide-eyed adoration and to cry out in praise, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Now, last week we glossed over verse 7, partly due to time constraints, but also because of how 11 and 22 draw on what Paul is saying in verse 7. Do you see it there? So that in the coming ages, this is Ephesians 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We thought about this a little bit last week. Why has God done what he has? in enacting such lavish grace on us sinners. Well, verse 4 answers part of that. Because of the great love with which he has loved us, as he's loved us with love, sheer mercy and sheer love he has shown us. This is why. But then verse 7 answers it some more. Why has God done what he has? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's purpose in lavishing sinners with mercy, in raising them and exalting them with Christ, in Christ and with Christ, was that they should serve as a demonstration of his grace for all eternity. Where's the locus point? Where's the venue? Where is the the place, if you like, where the grace of God is most clearly displayed? Where, Where does God get to show off his grace, if I can put it that way? You know, my father was a, a bowler back in the, the late 70s and 80s, and he had this small trophy case in our laundry room of all places. And he had these old, dusty bowling trophies that he never bothered to take out of the, tray, out of the, uh, out of the case. And, uh, but he, you know, for being the three-time league champions in the North Kingsville Area Bowling League in 1989 and so forth, he was mighty proud of those things. He would have thought he would have put them in his living room to show them off even further to any visitors uh, that were coming through our door. But he kept those dusty old bowling trophies up for as long as I can remember back in the laundry room. Far more profound than that, where is the trophy case by which the Lord God delights to show off his extravagances of grace? Paul, in our text here, tells us that it is you, in you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are, after all, believer in Jesus. You are His handiwork, he says there in verse 10, we are his workmanship or his handiwork, it says in other translation. What Paul says to the saints in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, God surely says to all of his saints, you are my crown and joy, Paul says. The church, my people, this is the the showcase of my grace throughout the coming ages. 
one age supervening upon the next like successive waves upon waves upon waves of the sea as far off into the future as thought can possibly reach. That's how one scholar puts it. God lavished his grace upon his church so that the church is the eternal billboard, if you like. The the saints of God displaying, showing forth unto all the watching world, showing forth even to the host of heaven and to the world itself, which scripture tells us that these hosts of heaven and the angels themselves look on anxiously. God trumpets the evidence of his saving works in the church from age unto age unto age until Christ returns and even then on into eternity. I love how F.F. Bruce puts it like this. Verse 7 means, throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. Designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness, close quote. Here's the trophy case. Here's the master artwork in the front entryway of his palace that the Lord God delights to show off. The evidence of his saving acts and saving mercy. It's his people. It's his church. So what is this society? What is this church that God has wrought, which displays the trophy, that he displays as like trophies of his grace, as Paul gets at in Ephesians 2, verse 4, and Ephesians 2, verse 7? Well, this society of grace, that's exactly what Paul expounds upon here in our latter half of Ephesians 2, in verses 11 through 22. Now, if you were with us last week in the evening service, verses 1 through 10 last time, we saw that the Apostle Paul considers three things. He reminds us of what we were, what God did, and what we are now, that we are God's workmanship. That was verses 1 through 10. And in our passage today, I think we find the same basic outline. I'm not terribly creative, and I think that there's no real need to reinvent the wheel necessarily. So sometimes the same basic outlines follow the Apostle as he moves from passage to passage. And so I think we have that same threefold outline here in verses 11 through 22. Paul again shows us what we were, Gentiles according to the flesh, that we were without God, that we were without hope in this world. And then secondly, what God has done by sending his son to make of these two disparate, hostile people groups one by means of the cross. And then thirdly, what we are now, that we are no longer alienated, no longer strangers, but rather citizens, members by full right of the household of God. And you know, it's remarkable how much this ancient letter speaks to such contemporary predicaments. It's God's word. Of course it has that kind of timelessness. That shouldn't surprise you, I suspect. Division, disunity, isolation, the need for community. At first blush, these initially strike us as really contemporary problems. And they are. Those words sound like they're issues ripped straight off of today's social media commentary. The great division that exists in our society. The isolating loneliness. The debilitating loneliness and isolation that so many people are enduring. This desperate need for community and friendship. But these are no new plagues on society, brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul and the world in which he lived knew these problems all too well. The ancient world, much like our own, was deeply divided. We're not altogether unique. Greeks, you may know, consider the rest of the world to be barbarians, and the Romans thought themselves to be superior to every other culture. Jews looked on the non-Jews or the Gentile people as dogs, 
Racism, social snobbery, political elitism, religious superiority, these are not unique to our age. These issues deeply divided Paul's world. There is a perennial problem, isn't there? Man is alienated from his fellow man. And when folks make that observation in our day, you hear it in the political commentary and news commentary, right? look at the division, look at the hatred that's sweeping through our nation. They're not wrong in what they say. It's just that the diagnosis is only partial. It's incomplete. Because for the Apostle Paul, there is a far more fundamental and urgent alienation that's dividing human society that must first be addressed before any other social dysfunctions can be considered. Right? The Apostle Paul is saying there is hatred and there is division among you because you are first and foremost enemies of Almighty God. And so long as you're hostile toward him, there will never, ever be any hope of peace on earth. There is an estrangement, and it's an estrangement not merely on a social scale, but on a cosmic scale. And it is precisely this problem that God has worked to resolve by means of the gospel. There is good news for you today. Ephesians 2 says to us yet again, yet again and again, look what God has done. Look in wide-eyed adoration. Look what God has done. So let's look to the text, shall we? First, our first section, verses 11 and 12. First of all, Paul reminds us of what we were, what we were before we were Christians. Now, I know there's likely to be some of you sitting here this morning who cannot really recall a time in your life where you did not know the love of the Lord Jesus. Some of you have that immense privilege. You were baptized into the church. You were raised in the church. Your parents brought you to church week in and week out. You sat under the ministry of the word. You grew up hearing these words of life and words of grace. And you cannot really think of a time. You don't have a dramatic conversion story where you were rescued out of a a paganism or rescued out of a, a destructive lifestyle and came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. You simply grew up hearing his word and singing his praises. And along the way, the Lord took away that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. You weren't maybe terribly conscious of a moment wherein it happened. And you love him. And you love him still. You can't think of a a real moment where this stark contrast is true of you. And if that's your testimony, don't you dare say that that's a boring testimony. You praise God for that testimony. Oh, for more of those kind of testimonies in our covenant children. However, there are others of you who can very much remember what your life was like before Christ. You know that stark difference and stark contrast. You may recall years of wandering, seeking some kind of significance in your life, not even realizing that as you're, as you're vainly striving to, to bring about some kind of significance in your life, that you were laboring and walking under a sentence of death. You know those words from Robert Murray McShane, a great Church of Scotland minister, mid-1800s, I once was a stranger to grace and to God, I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends often spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah's at Canu, the Lord our righteousness, was nothing to me. Friends would recount Robert Murray McShane when he was a child. He was raised in the church, but he was not converted until later in life. Later in life, I say that he died at age 30. Nevertheless, later in his his teenage years, he wasn't converted, and his friends would speak in, in rapture, he calls it, in, in these, these peon, peons of praise of the Lord and his goodness and his mercy. And he thought, it says nothing to me, utterly indifferent to it. 
And the Apostle Paul wants to help the Ephesians remember what it was like to be strangers to grace, to be strangers to the Lord, strangers to his righteousness. And he does that, helping us understand our alienation in five particular ways. First, he says, there's a social alienation, verse 11. A social alienation. See what Paul says there? Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, he's reminding them how the Jewish people who belonged to the covenant community, the people of God in the Old Testament scriptures, he's reminding them how these Gentiles thought of them. For them, the, the circumcision was the badge of belonging to God. It was a, an outward physical identity marker, and they boasted in it. Even though Paul, and you notice even the way he phrases it here, he reminds them of how silly it is to boast in something made in the flesh by hands. It's a surgical procedure, he's telling them. It's not as if they're boasting in a supernatural reality, as if some kind of miracle that God had done. It's a surgical procedure. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend who was very proud of his new job that he had, and he would brag to his friends every day, those of us who weren't yet working a high school job, I went to work every day. I went to work after school every day, and you all didn't. And one of these days, his dad was standing nearby, and he said, that's great, son. Just remember who gave you the car to get you back and forth to that job. You didn't give yourself that car as much as you may want to boast in your working of that job. There's something like that going on here. You boast in this surgical procedure in the flesh as if it's something to boast about. It's not a miracle of, the, of a conversion, as if God has wrought it. So there's something of a rejoinder in Paul's tone here. You brag as if it's something to be pride, prideful of. It's a thing made in the flesh by hands. So just calm down, Jews. But to describe the Gentiles as the uncircumcision, you see, it's not merely a statement of fact. It was a reminder, at least to Jewish minds, of Gentile inferiority. They'd worded that phrasing. It's a subtle thing, but it's a very deliberate thing. We are the circumcision, the Jews would say. You all, Gentiles, are the uncircumcision. So there's a social exclusion there. But worse than any derision that they might have endured from a people group, there's a spiritual alienation, a second kind of alienation. You see it there in verse 12? The Gentiles are alienated. They're separated from Christ himself. They were excluded from access to the only name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. They did not know Jesus. They did not know the Lord's Messiah. Then there's a third category, a third alienation. They're alienated from God's people. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They did not belong to the kingdom of God. One man puts it like this. These pagans, these Gentiles, these non-believers were excluded socially, excluded savingly from the knowledge of Christ, excluded ecclesiastically from the church and the covenant community. So the fourth problem, verse 12 again, a fourth kind of alienation. They were excluded from the covenants on account of the fact that they're ecclesiastically excluded from the people of Israel. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. You see it there in verse 12? Strangers, Scripture says, right? Because they were on the outside. The promises that God made to his people were not available, were not promises available to them. Socially excluded, savingly excluded, ecclesiastically excluded, covenantally excluded. And finally, behind, standing behind all that, they were excluded from any hope, or what one man terms theologically excluded. They lived, verse 12 again, they lived having no hope and without God in the world. 
Now, we have to put ourselves into the mindset of the ancient world. Uh, You probably know this, but we moderns tend to think of ourselves very individualistically. We think to ourselves, well, I have access to God all the time. I, I have my Bible at home. I can listen to sermons online. I can listen to podcasts. Goodness, I can even read my Bible on my cell phone, even if I forget a physical Bible with me. If I never went to church, I have all kinds of access to God's promises. I can access them 24-7 almost anywhere in the world. I don't understand the problem. Now, these are all very fine things, right? Having your Bible on your phone, downloading sermons, listening to edifying podcasts, very fine things. Please don't mishear me. But because of our reality, because of our ubiquitous access to knowledge of Christ, such as we have it, We have to work to wrap our minds around how the Bible conceptualizes access to God and his promises. Because you see, for Paul and for the New Testament church and for the Israelites of the Old Testament, there was no access to God outside of his people. Because it was among his people that God could be met. In a world with no cell phones, no mass printed Bibles, very few books for the average family, Right? No, no family copy of the Bible in each household. No family Bible that you keep on the kitchen table. Where did you go in this time frame, in this world? Where did you go to hear God's word? Well, you went among the people. The Israel of old in the tabernacle or the temple or the synagogue. Or in the New Testament, you went among the Christians. You went among the church. Because it was there, among God's people, God's word was read out loud. And his word was taught and explained and preached. The promises of God were explained. And and God's word was sung in worship. And the elders and the parents would would catechize or teach young children the truths of the faith. If I can put it this way, if you wanted to meet with Almighty God, you did it on his terms, not on terms that you jolly well please. And in the Old Testament, that meant participating in the sacrifices at the temple or the tabernacle at the appointed festivals. It meant accessing God and accessing his word where God dwelt. And that was among his people. And the New Testament has much that same understanding, right? No mass media, no radio, no television, no internet broadcasts. God's promises are to be found and his word is to be heard where God dwells and where God discloses himself. Among his people. Right? Television, podcasts, conferences, all good things. I I make use of them myself. I avail myself of these things many times. But none of them, brothers and sisters, come to us as the biblically prescribed, God-ordained means of grace by which God meets with us and deals with our souls It's the covenant community of God's people gathered around his word. That's what comes with his divine sanction, and therefore that's what comes with his divine blessing. If nothing else, if nothing else, I hope you can see already that how you think about the church, not a building, not a a brick-and-mortar structure, not a worship hall, but Christians, the church, Christians gathered corporately, how you think about the church matters a very great deal, brothers and sisters. That you can't have Jesus and not love the church. That you can't be spiritual and have some sort of connection to God while rejecting the church. You've heard that ancient dictum by one of the dictum by one of the church fathers, Cyprian, made popular in our circles by John Calvin. He quoted it over and over again. 
He who would have God as his father must have the church as his mother. It's a lovely quote. It's absolutely true. Sometimes it makes people skittish because they think it sounds too Roman Catholic. It's not. Don't worry about it. It's a lovely quote. He who would have God as his father must have the church as his mother. Because according to the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2, to be outside the church, to be outside the people of God, the access point where God's promises are made tangible and real and efficacious, to be outside the church really and truly and spiritually is to be without God and without hope in this world. So that's the first thing, who we were, who we were. But then secondly, what God has done, what God has done. Look at verse 13. All right, you were without hope, you were without God and without hope in the world, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. Verse 14, Christ himself is our peace who makes us both one. Verse 15, he creates in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. Here's the good news. It is possible to move from exclusion to inclusion to move from outside to inside. It is possible to transition from death and enmity with God and enmity with his people and transition to life and friendship with God and adoption into his family and a place within and belonging to his people. Those two horrendous juxtapositions, those two horrendous bifurcations need not remain the status quo. It is possible to move from death to life. How, Paul says, in Christ Jesus brought near by the blood of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ, brought near by his shed blood. There's no magic formula that you must utter. There's no secret incantation to get into the club. No prayer that just by saying the right words, it seals you in. No ritual to perform. No, all there is is the abandonment of yourself to Jesus Christ. The ceasing of self-trust or a performance mentality and the entrusting of yourself to Christ alone, the one who alone can rescue you by means of the blood of his cross. He died to make sinners to be saints and to make strangers to become members of his family and to enfold them forever. How does he do that? How does that work exactly? Well, Paul shows us the cross has two dimensions to it that it addresses both our horizontal alienation, right? That's a a shorthand way that we like to say it's expressing our our hostility to one another. The horizontal problem. I sin against you, you sin against me. How are we going to deal with that? Horizontal alienation. So that those who once could not belong may now belong with the church and the people of God. So it addresses a horizontal alienation. How to get people in to the society of the redeemed. But it also has a vertical solution to our alienation. It reconciles us to our God and judge and maker. Right? God and sinners reconciled. Let's think first about the horizontal reconciliation. Look at verses 14 and 15. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Right? The Jewish people, the people of the Old Covenant, were distinctive by virtues of the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. They were once like a barrier, right? 
Unless you conformed to these rituals, you could not belong. And now that barrier has been wonderfully removed because Christ has fulfilled every facet of the ceremonial law. And so this law has served its purposes. It has been fulfilled. Its temporary nature and its temporary purpose have ended. You'll remember that those of you who who know your Old Testaments and you know your blueprints and architectural layouts of the Temple Mount, you'll remember that in the Jerusalem Temple there were courts, inner courts and outer courts, only the, only the Jewish men, only Jewish males could go into the inner courts. The truest part of the temple. The realest part of the temple. Right? The women, they had their outer court. And the Gentiles had even an outer more court than that. They had their courts outside. And they dare not leave their assigned space. Years ago, in 1871, archaeologists were doing an excavation around the Temple Mount. And they discovered, actually, one of those... Uh, warning signs from the temple. I can't remember if it was inscribed in Greek or Latin or Hebrew, but they they unearthed an ancient warning sign that was posted on the the Temple Mount uh, prior to the temple's destruction in A.D. 70. Translated, it read this. Warning! No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. Welcome to worship! We're glad you're here. Don't forget to sign the greeting pads in the pews. Not so much. If you did not conform, you were not welcome. The ceremonial laws kept you out. But the good news is Christ has come. And those ceremonial laws are gone forever so that there is no ritual barrier to participation in the people of God because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come. And that actually drives us, do you see, to the vertical reconciliation that the cross accomplishes. We are able to be here, you and I, in the church of Jesus Christ, here in Oak Ridge, here in East Tennessee, and around the world. People in this room, people of different backgrounds, people of different ethnicities, people of different culture and history and social status. Here's how true unity and oneness and reconciliation is achieved. It's a unity to which the world can only offer cheap and paltry imitations. The oneness that God works in us is far more profound. The the fundamental cause of of our one another alienation is that we are enemies of a holy and pure God because we are rebel sinners. And actually, my friends, if God can breach that cosmic breach of treachery of between a holy and pure God and vile wretched sinners if he is able to bring about that kind of reconciliation so the two things that were formerly irreconcilable have been brought together in adoption in loving embrace into his family if God can do that it's nothing to him to bring together two warring people groups Jews and Gentiles if he can bring together cosmically treasonous sinners and welcome them into his family it is as nothing to him to bring together a couple different people groups on the globe. My goodness. Verses 16 to 18, do you see it? Paul says Christ has reconciled us both, not simply to one another, but to God, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We are one because the cross reconciles us all. Everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who trusts in Christ, together reconciles us to God. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You hear Paul echoing Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. 
He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So Jews are near, Gentiles are far off, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The whole Trinity is here. Jew, Gentile, everyone, we both, we all have access to the same God through the same Christ because the same Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and he's taken away our hearts of stone and he's given us hearts of flesh. The new birth, new life, born from above, same Spirit, same Father, same Jesus, one church throughout the world in every generation, in every age, world without end. Amen and amen. Look what God has done. So what we were, what we were, first thing. Secondly, what God has done, God and sinners reconciled. Which leads us thirdly then to what we are now. What we are now. What is the effect of all of this? This marvelous, breathtaking project, this salvific enterprise that Christ has accomplished. What is the effect of all of this? Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You want to draw a line from verse 12 down here to verse 19, right? Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope without God in the world. And draw a line down here to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Here's your new status, believer in Jesus. Not an outsider anymore. Some of you have been Christians for a while, and you still would call yourself a sinner. And and that is true, in a sense. There is no one this side of heaven who's not a sinner. We we, we retain this awkward, dual reality that Luther articulated, right? Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously justified, simultaneously righteous, and yet a sinner. But sinner is not the primary identity of a Christian any longer. Right? That's who you were. But now, now, what does Paul say? You are a member of the household of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now you are a saint by grace and never again a stranger. If Christ is your Savior, if Christ is your Savior, visitors, if you're here with us today, boys and girls, as you're thinking about these things, folks who might be tuning in via live stream, folks who might be listening to a recording on this later on from around the world, If Christ is your Savior, then Christians are your family and the church is where you belong. And if Christ is your Savior, then here you have a home and you are welcome here. And this church will love you and does love you as a fellow image bearer of the Lord God Almighty and as a fellow citizen and saint with us in Jesus Christ. This is your home and you belong here, believer in Jesus. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no second class citizen because you have been redeemed by grace and bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. You are right with God and you are reconciled to one another. That's the unity that the gospel achieves to which this world only offers cheap and paltry imitations. More than that, as if that weren't enough, more than that, look at verses 20 through 22. You are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
by God the Spirit. Some of you have lots of experience in the world of construction. Paul is essentially describing a construction site. Imagine it. The the dirt and the cinder blocks and the orange barrels and the bulldozers and the front-end loaders spread all around. It's a building site. It's a grand structure. A, A colossal palace is being constructed. And the foundation level has so far been laid. Paul's saying the apostles' teaching and the prophets' teaching, the truth of Holy Scripture, that's the foundation layer. And the cornerstone of that foundation, right? The cornerstone gives the definitive shape to the whole structure, right? Paul says that cornerstone in that foundation level layer is Jesus Christ. The building that God is building, is constructing across the ages, is shaped by Jesus through his word, his apostles and prophets. And what kind of building is it that we are being made into? What's God constructing? It's a temple, Paul says. The place where God dwells. That's what temple means in scripture. By the way, the Hebrew word for temple in the Old Testament is the same word for palace. What's the distinguishing feature? How do you know if it's talking about a temple or a palace? Well, a king dwells in a palace. God dwells in a temple. God dwells in the temple. That's what he's building us into. The place where God dwells. And for the New Testament, that is the church, the home of God. He's here. How do we think about the church in light of that reality? Do we love it? If this is the place where God dwells in the midst of his people, if this is the place where he visits his people savingly and dispenses grace upon grace to them, is the church precious to us? The church is not just a bunch of random individuals who happen to find themselves in the same auditorium on a Sunday. Now, you happen to be in this worship hall, and you happen to be in this worship hall, and isn't this nice? I see you across the room, and I'm having my private devotions while you're having your private devotions, and we're having this experience, and that's the end of it. We'll go home to our separate ways. No. That's how the world likes to conceive of us. No, the church is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The church is his home, his dwelling place, that holy temple. I love what one commentator puts it. He says, how important and how precious the church is. How significant is preaching of greater moment than the declaration of presidents and kings. The church's prayers more powerful than bullets and bombs. Long after your passport has crumbled into the dust... And all record of your earthly citizenship has been forgotten by generations to come. If by faith in Jesus Christ you are a member of the church, then your citizenship is in heaven. Your name inscribed in the Lamb's book of life and it will never be blotted out. Close quote. We need to remember who we are, don't we? It's easy to forget. So many of us are striving to persevere faithfully so many of you are you're here week after week you're giving and you're praying and you're showing expressions of christian care in countless ways you're striving to live the christian life in all faithfulness as you can and yet the rapid fire of our trials in our lives often obscures our vision our lives are busy and oftentimes incredibly painful and frustrating we're slogging it out week by week some of you are caring for aging family members some of you are heartbroken by wayward children wayward spouses Some of you are trying to make the best decision you can for your children's education. You're trying to rear them in the faith, knowing that this world has no shortage of monstrous strategies to undermine your efforts every step of the way. You're exhausted from work. You're endured yet another family conflict. You're still being hurt by those who are supposed to love you the most. I dare say that most days we don't feel very royal, do we? Not quite like that kingdom of priests. That holy temple, daughters and sons of the Most High, royal king that scripture says we are. 
Oh, my friends, we need reminding again and again. We need reminding to behold our God and his wondrous works. That is the only antidote to our worldly woes and the only fuel for us to persevere. That this is who Christ is and this is what he has done. Oh, Christian, remember what God has done by Jesus Christ and how he has grafted us into his people. Remember that and come to him again and again and again and come among his people over and over and over again and come to his word and come to his table and come where God delights to meet you. And here you'll find grace sufficient for the living of today and you'll find bright hope for tomorrow until Christ shall finally at last lead you all the way home. I'll praise God for the ministry of his word to us this day. Let's all pray together. Lord God, we love your kingdom. And we're stunned, absolutely stunned, that you have made us to be your dwelling place, O God. Would you grant us the confidence of knowing that by the grace of the Lord Jesus, you have made us your children? And mindful of this truth, would you swell our hearts with glad affections and renewed hope and fill our mouths with grateful praise? We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.